0: So recently, I got invited back by a school that I'd been to before that actually wants me to come and do a a lecture to their sixth formers. Uh, In this case, they've asked me to come. We've agreed I'm going to come and give them actually a lecture on some of the arguments for the existence of God, um, some of the arguments that are covered within the A-level curriculum for those who are studying philosophy. So I get to be a little bit more, here's what I believe and why I think you should agree with me than I am in school conferences where I'm just sort of playing the host and neutrally giving them the information and so on. So I thought I would um, jump into just uh, one example from this material that I've been preparing recently of using the syllogistic structure of logic to present arguments to 16-, 17-year-old students uh, in hopefully a, a relatively interesting way that I think... Even at that age, uh, they can cope with and get their minds around and then there'll be Q&A uh, after the talk uh, and so on. And having looked at the curriculum, I'm thinking, how can I do this interestingly? I hit upon the, the fact of, of uh, doing them a talk about Anthony Flew, the philosopher Anthony Flew, science and God, and how recent findings of science played into uh, arguments for God that a philosopher called Anthony Flew uh, was convinced by, having been for a long number of years uh, self-described uh, atheist although it depends what you mean by um, but certainly he had uh, the position that uh, the onus of proof must lie upon the theist upon the pe- person who believes in God um, but he always said he was open to that evidence and indeed he got to the stage where he thought that enough evidence had come in that he should change his mind about it yeah. what does onus of proof uh, where Where is the burden of proof? Whose job is it to give an argument for a truth claim? Like um, This is another issue that philosophers spend a lot of time arguing about. It's a bit like the courts of law. If you're in a, a legal situation you are um, innocent until proven guilty. Well, what about beliefs? What about claims like there is a God? Or there is a difference between right and wrong? Or rainbows are beautiful. Um, should... When should such a claim be presumed innocent and treated as true until it's been shown to be false? Or should you be automatically suspicious and and presume that such claims are false until you've got a good reason to believe that it's true? Now obviously you can't treat everything in that suspicious way because if you try to, to treat all truth claims as unreliable until you had a good reason to believe them, well, you could never have a good reason to believe anything because you would distrust any argument that was given to you for believing anything. So philosophers will say that you have to start arguing from somewhere. There must at least be some beliefs you hold that it's rational for you to hold without having to have an argument for it. And you need to do that in order to be able to argue for anything because you have to start from, from somewhere. You see, so this is a, a big discussion in philosophy. Sort of how do we tell when it's sensible to treat a belief as innocent until proven guilty? What kind of beliefs is belief in God such a belief, for example? In order to rationally believe in God, do you have to have an argument? Now, Antony Flew, as an atheist philosopher, argued that indeed you did have to have an argument in order to rationally believe in God, and that he didn't think the arguments were good enough, and so he didn't believe in God. Now, I think he's wrong about that, at least under certain circumstances. But, leaving that all aside, the interesting thing is that Flew was particularly interested in philosophical arguments for God that had as their basis information from contemporary scientific research. Um, So, as, as Craig puts it, you can have arguments for God where one of the premises in that argument is supported by scientific evidence. So it's not that it's a scientific argument for God, because science doesn't really get you to that philosophical, metaphysical realm, but you can have scientific evidence for a premise in a bigger argument that is a philosophical argument for God. And over the years, Flew had kept his eye on a number of areas of scientific research and had kind of said, um, I can see this is tricky. For an atheist, that the idea that the universe had a beginning, which, I mean, only came about in modern cosmology, uh, really sort of started hitting the ground sort of in the 50s, 60s, uh, been mooted earlier. But for the majority of, of history of philosophy and so on, uh, people sided with uh, Aristotle who thought the universe had just always existed. And that was the kind of standard atheistic claim, was, well, the universe has just always been here. There was a famous debate between Bertrand Russell, the, uh, the atheist, and um, a Christian philosopher called F.C. Copleston. Uh, and in that debate, Bertrand Russell, when asked, you know, well, how do you explain what the, why the universe is here? He'd say, well, I, I just say it's always been here. That's it. Nothing to explain, you see. But uh, with Big Bang cosmology coming online, and indeed lots of. Um, sceptical or non-Christian scientists originally opposed Big Bang Theory because they said, this just smacks of creationism. You know, this is letting creationism into, into science. This is not a good thing. So that's interesting. Over the years, you can see that Flew, is a quote from Flew. He said, since the beginning of my philosophical life, I have followed the policy of Plato's Socrates. I mentioned Socrates earlier. We must follow the argument wherever it leads. So he, he said... As an atheist, I am open to following the argument. Give me a good argument for believing, and then I'll believe. And actually, in 2004, he publicly announced, I have changed my mind on this. I now believe that there is a God. I've not become a Christian. I don't believe in life after death. I don't think the Bible's a revelation of God, etc. But I do now think there is some kind of creator. And I think we've got good reason to believe that now, that we didn't have before... Because now we have more scientific evidence for some of these premises in these arguments that you can mount for a god from modern science. Uh, So he gave up on atheism in 2004, saying that the case for an Aristotelian god, a god like the god that the Greek philosopher Aristotle believed in, not a sort of revealing god who's interested in the moral affairs of humanity and so on, but a, a, a designing creator of the universe... Uh, a God who has the characteristics of, of power and intelligence, at least, is now much stronger than it ever was before. And he published this book, um, which he uh, co-wrote with uh, Roy Abraham Varghese uh, to sort of help him flesh out the stories and so on, because he was, he was getting on in the years then, uh, in his 80s, um, called There Is No God But The Known Crossed Out With uh Uh, That's not me doing that. That's what the front cover actually looked like. Uh, There is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. And he highlighted um, in interviews around the time, this is a quote uh, from a flu, and he says these three issues, and we'll only have time to look at one. uh, But he says, science, as, as far as science being science goes, that's what the qua there means, science as such, can't furnish an argument for God's existence. That's not science's job. But the laws of nature that are studied by science, life with its uh, its complex functioning organisation that seems to achieve the goal of being alive. This is what the Greek word uh, teleological means. And the the very existence of the universe, and particularly thinking about Big Bang cosmology... Uh, can only be explained in the light of an intelligence. An intelligence that explains its own existence and that of the world. So there are these three particular issues that for him uh, were the the key uh, points. And there are issues where increasing scientific understanding of those points convinced him that, okay, now he had to, to change his mind on this issue. So the existence of the universe... Um, key point that I have to make to students at, at this era because they've, they've done science they've learned about Big Bang Cosmology at school if not from TV documentaries is that Big Bang Cosmology is, is not an explanation of why there is a universe they often think that it is they don't get the, the, the fact that Big Bang Cosmology is a description of the past But it's not an explanation of that past. It says, here is what happened in the past. It doesn't say why it happened. Uh, And actually, the fact that it so happens, that in the past, the past had a beginning, that the past is finite, that if you got into a time machine, you you could arrive at a day when there is no previous day. An hour when there is no previous hour, and so on, that there's a beginning to time, actually clearly raises the question of why is this universe here? Um, And for a long time, Flew had been doing public debates on the existence of God and so on. He'd been saying things like this. In 1992, he admitted being embarrassed by the contemporary cosmological idea that the universe had a beginning and he was kind of hoping that this would be just a passing phase, that new information would come in and that we'd discover that that, that theory was not true and He there's not enough evidence to really have to believe that yet in 1992 you know? um, but he says it's certainly neither easy, easy nor comfortable to maintain this position that the universe is all there is in the face of the Big Bang story. So if it does turn out that that's true, that's a difficulty for my atheism. Um, more recently, an atheist philosopher of science called Bradley Monton says, if the universe had a beginning, that lends a support to one of the arguments for God, the so-called cosmological argument. And the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin, uh, speaking at the 70th birthday celebrations for Stephen Hawking, the physicist, said all the evidence we have says the universe had a beginning. And all the evidence we have says the universe had a beginning. There was a a report in New Scientist, which is a very secular uh, magazine, of popular magazine of science. There was an editorial in there summarising the events of this conference at Hawking's uh, birthday celebrations, uh, saying the Big Bang's part of the furniture of modern cosmology, Physicists have been fighting against it for decades because of its theological overtones. Um, they thought they had workarounds. They've, they've tried on lots of different models of the universe that dodged the need for a beginning while still having a Big Bang. Now, How, how on earth do you have a, a, a model of the universe that has a Big Bang but doesn't have a beginning? Where well, you do things like you say, well, before that Big Bang, there was a Big Crunch of the previous phase of the universe that had come from another bang. So you have a bang, and it expands, and it contracts, and it crunches, and it bangs, and it crunches. And it just does that forever. So you can, I can believe in the Big Bang, but I can believe there was no beginning, really, to the universe as a, as a whole, as it were. Um, that idea, along with various other ways of trying to have a Big Bang but without having a beginning, uh... This uh, editorial now says, uh, shot full of holes recent, by recent research, it now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, we've got to finally answer the problem of how do you get a universe out of nothing. And it was a very interesting editorial from a very secular source. So, here's where I start using some syllogistic logic very briefly. Um, premise one... Taking Big Bang Cosmology, that would directly imply that there was a first physical event. The series of physical events into the past is not infinite. There was a beginning, so there was a first one. Okay. But premise two, every physical event has a cause outside of itself. Um, lots of ways that one could go about uh, arguing this. Uh, quantum mechanics is the the, the favourite way people like to try and object to this and say, well, well, hang on a minute. In quantum mechanics, fundamental particles just appear out of nowhere, out of nothing. This is um, the Lawrence Krauss wrote an entire book based on this fallacy, um, <laughs> um, and it's just not true. Um, in quantum mechanics. Uh, Under some interpretations of quantum mechanics, fundamental particles can randomly appear out of the quantum field background, which is a physical, a complex physical state of physical things existing in flux, rearranging themselves. And there's one quantum physicist who puts it this way he says, "There there are these quantum fields. And some of the arrangements of those fields make particles. It's a bit like the way there are different arrangements of my fingers, and one of the arrangements of my fingers makes a fist. When you arrange the fingers in the right way, you get a fist. And then it—oh, the fist disappeared. Why is my fist gone? Oh, it suddenly popped into existence out of not—well, not out of nothing, <laughs> out of the pre-existing complex the fields. See, so quantum mechanics, uh, even in an indeterminate uh, understanding of them, is not a counterexample to this, this claim. And I have various quotes from secular sources and so on making that point. Also, you can make a sub argument you say anything that's contingent, anything that can exist but doesn't have to, it's possible for it to exist but it doesn't have to exist. So if it does exist, why? It immediately raises the question of, well, why does it then? There must be some explanation for why it exists. But physical things, including universes, seem to be the kind of thing that can exist but don't have to. And many atheists themselves believe that because when you come on to, if we can't come on to, talking about the fine-tuning argument, the favourite answer to the fine-tuning argument is to say, well, maybe there are lots of different universes Maybe there's some universe-generating mechanism that that randomly produces lots of different universes, some of which will be friendly to having life in them. And so it's not surprising, it's nothing to explain there as to why the universe is friendly to life rather than unfriendly to life existing in it. Um, But that whole answer to the fine-tuning problem, apart from the fact that there's no evidence for the existence of those other universes, assumes that universes are the kind of thing that can exist but don't have to, that can be produced, that can be caused. Okay? So if the universe is the kind of thing that has to be caused, and there's the first, physical events are the kind of thing that has to be caused, and there's the first one, you see? There was a first physical event, every physical event has a cause outside of itself, therefore the first physical event had a cause outside of itself. But what was that? Well, you can't say, well, it was the previous physical event, you know, like Bertrand Russell would have wanted to. There is no previous physical event. Um, what caused it? The, 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 physical, the next physical event? Hang on a minute. <laughs> the second physical event caused the first one, but only existed because the first one... Co- <laughs> what? You know. So what, what do you do with this? Well, you can extend it. You carry forward that premise, you see, carrying forward... The first physical event had a cause outside of itself. The cause of the first physical event can't have been a physical cause. there's only two options, physical or not. So, it had a cause, but it wasn't a physical thing. So what was it? Well, it was, obviously, a non-physical cause. Because there's a non-physical cause of the existence of the entire physical universe. What does that sound like? You see? Um, but we've, we've presented that and structured that just with two overlapping syllogisms and it's not hard to follow the logic of it because it's, it's just, as we saw it's kind of intuitive, isn't it? It really all depends upon the truth of the premises because again, I, there's no ambiguity I'm not using like, universe to mean two completely different things or physical events to mean two completely different things, or whatever, if you look at it. The conclusion really does follow from the premises in both of the cases, both of the the sub-arguments. So are, you know, is it true? If you think the universe had a beginning, (laughs) what do you do? Where would you object? As it were, what, what price tag do you have to pay, as it were, in order to Avoid the conclusion. Well, I mean, if you're prepared to say, well, I don't think the universe did have a beginning, then of course you can avoid the conclusion. But what's the intellectual and indeed sort of moral in terms of of (laughs) consistency and um, faithfulness to the truth in, in the face of the evidence and so on, what's the price tag attached to rejecting the argument? That's what arguments really do. They attach a sort of intellectual price tag to rejecting the conclusion of the argument. If you can't say, oh, this argument fails to meet one of those three conditions of a good argument, you know, if you can, in all all honesty, say, no, I I think it's obvious that, you know, that premise probably isn't true, and I can give you the following reasons, and you haven't given me enough reason to believe it, and so on, well, fine. But, what about you know saying um no I think the last you know 50 years of cosmological evidence we keep getting new evidences that come in that all point to the same conclusion the microwave background radiation the redshift of stars the second law of thermodynamics the Kobe satellite in the 1980s the Max Planck satellite in the etc <laughs> you know we keep having evidence pointing to the the, the New scientist is saying, yeah, we have to admit this. Uh, Alexander Vilenkin, an atheist cosmologist, is saying all the evidence we have points to the universe having been, etc. You can you really get away with saying, oh, I don't like that conclusion. Oh, I'll just say there's no beginning, you know, with, with your integrity intact. That's what the that's the dilemma that an argument, a good argument, uh, gives you. So um, I do more in the in the actual presentation I'm doing. I'm going to look at those three areas. Of science in a sort of forty-five minute talk, but you can see how, how it's, it's very p- powerful to c- just give people. You're laying your neck on the line in a sense by giving them the argument, because they can see. I can see what you're doing, and I, if I can reject some step of what you're doing, I can show you up. If I at the Q and A session, if I can say, "Hang on a minute, that's not that. That doesn't follow because, or well, that premise wasn't true because what about this counterexample, or whatever." They can sink the argument. But if they can't, <laughs> you see. And if they do sink the argument, then I'm human and I will be embarrassed. But what I ought to do as a philosopher, having got over my temporary embarrassment, is say, thank you very much for showing me that that was not a good argument for that conclusion. It doesn't show the conclusion is wrong, but it does show that that's not a good argument for it and I should go away and have another think. and see whether they can adjust the argument or whether it needs to be abandoned. I shouldn't argue that way with people in the future because now I see that's not a good argument. Thank you. You've, you've, You've brought me to a closer, better understanding of what's true.